In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we continue this epiphany season, in which Jesus is revealed to us as the light of the world, we see the light of his gospel continue to increase in his ministry, and increase in his teaching. And today we come to this passage in our gospel lesson that functions as sort of a bridge between what we heard last week and what we're going to hear next week. The first half of our passage deals with this new identity that we've been given as Jesus's blessed people, while the latter half is going to set us up for Jesus's Jesus's teachings on the law. And this latter half shows us Jesus's relationship to the law. And while all of this is connected, uh, we're going to spend our time mainly focused on hearing from the first half of this passage, because Jesus gives us these responsibilities that come with being his blessed people in his kingdom. That is, because you and I have been baptized and have been given Jesus's kingdom and all of its benefits, we are actually called to live it out through our collective witness. Okay? So let's not get the cart before the horse. We have to understand what this passage is flowing from. It's flowing from everything that we heard last week. And if you weren't here last week, the sermon was on the Beatitudes, where Jesus gives us his heavenly blessings, where he gives us a new identity through him. Blessed are you, he says. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So because that's you, here's what naturally follows. Can you think of a time whenever you were hired for a new job and you probably got a good look at that job description before you applied, so you knew something of what you were getting yourself into, but once you were hired, things kind of changed, didn't they? You threw on that new uniform that they gave you, you showed up, and there was somebody that was there on hand to, to teach you and to train you what those responsibilities on paper looked like on the ground level. That's kind of what today is. That's kind of what this teaching is. See, in your baptism, you received a new identity. It's objective. It's something that God did for you. It's when he made you his dear child. And through that, you were also commissioned as Jesus' disciple, whether it was a long time ago, whenever you were a baby, or whether it was relatively recently. And now that you are wearing the uniform of Christ's righteousness, according to Galatians 3, Here's what it means to follow him. You've got the uniform on. So here's what it looks like on a ground level. Here is what his people are called to do. The job description of our witness. Who was Jesus teaching in his Sermon on the Mount? Was this teaching just kind of generally tossed out to everybody, everywhere, at all times and in all places? Who was he talking to? It was his disciples. His special people. Not just the inner circle of the twelve, by the way, because by then you just had four of who, what would become what we know as the twelve, but it was people from the crowds, it was men, women, children who were called by him and those who intended to actually follow him. So who does this apply to today? You, right? This is you. You're all here because you want to follow Jesus. You're here because you've been baptized into him, and this is your identity. So Jesus isn't just speaking in hypotheticals here. That's important to remember. So 
just like from last week's passage, he's not saying you might be blessed. You might be blessed. I still need to gather some intel as to whether that's true or not of you. No, he says, blessed are you. You are blessed in him. Yours is the kingdom, dear Christian. We're talking about a present tense reality. And the same can be said of our passage this morning. Because you are blessed and because you are his disciple, this is what is true of you right now. And this, de- this job description that we're going to talk about this morning, it comes with two big columns on it, all right? Two big columns. One is going to be labeled salt, and the other one is labeled light. So here's the first column. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He calls you the salt of the earth, his salty people. That's pretty fascinating. We use that phrase to generally describe somebody who's a a pretty decent person. That's a salt of the earth type of guy. You ever heard that before? But what does Jesus really mean whenever he's using this reference? He's referencing this item that was very important for daily Jewish living. It was a staple. As we talked about in Bible study, one scholar managed to list uh, 11 different uses for salt during biblical times. I don't have any kind of time to list all 11 for you. Maybe that'll be an upcoming sermon series down the road. 11 different uses for salt. Um, Sounds exciting, right? But let me just outline to you a, a couple today that I think are really important for our context and for our day and age. First, salt is used for flavor. We all know that. But it's incorrect to say that salt gives flavor. Some of you chefs in the room, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't give flavor. Rather, its correct use is to bring out the flavors that already exist within the food. So the salt is not meant to overpower the food, but rather to show us what the food is supposed to taste like. That's what it's for, by the way. Some of you people that just sit there and go like that. It's not, that's not what it's for, right? It's just a to show you what it's supposed to taste like, all right? Not to taste like salt. Now, I make this point because there's one application of this passage that goes something like this, all right? I've heard this quite a bit. I've heard this. Uh, Christians are supposed to be the spice of life, adding flavor, the flavor of life in the world, sorry, adding flavor to life in the world through the way that we interact with one another. So through the way that you and I treat each other, we're to be the spice of life. Now, I think that that's true, and there's, you can get there from the biblical passages, but I don't really think that that's what's being taught here. Um, I don't think it corresponds exactly to what Jesus is teaching. I think it's more correct to actually put it this way. Christians are to be salt in that we show the world the intended purpose and use of God's good gifts. See, that's different, Right? So in one sense, we are called to love one another, and they will know that we're Christians by our love for each other, right? That's the first thing that I talked about. But I think what's get, what Jesus is getting at here is that we bring out the flavor. We bring out the purpose for which God intended. So to use a concrete example, 
Marriage in our culture is completely on the rocks. I don't know if you noticed. But we as Christians show forth to the world God's good intentions and His good purposes for this holy institution by living in it honorably and in a holy way. Right? And so by doing that, we are salt. We're showing the world God's intentions and purposes for his good gifts. And so this is for everything, not just marriage, right? This is for everything. This is for, um, for <clears throat> whatever, your job, God's good intentions and his purposes for your job. How are you called to live in your job in such a way that it shows people this is what God intends for this, right? Okay, so for a second thing that I want to mention is that salt is used as a preservative, to keep food from decaying. As Jesus' disciples, we are salty in this way, in that we keep the world from falling into further corruption and complete ruin by practicing holy living. It's always for the sake of the righteous that God spares the unbelieving world. Do you remember whenever Abraham interceded for Sodom? And uh, it didn't go all that well. God said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spare Sodom. And here's why. Because there's no one righteous down there. So that's how it is in our day. right? God spares the unbelieving world for the sake of the righteous. And that is not to say the righteousness that we have in and of ourselves. That is the righteousness of faith. He spares the unbelieving world for the sake of those who have faith in Him, and He wills, and it's His good pleasure to work through those who have faith in Him for the sake of others, that they might come to repentance and faith, that they too might trust in Him as their Redeemer. That's it. I mean, whenever you ask the question, you look around the world and you say, why hasn't God just wiped it all away? Why hasn't He just taken this world and widened it up and thrown it into the dustbin of history? It's for your sake. And it's for the sake of those who he is calling to repentance and faith, which is all. So what does this mean practically? Well, it means that we don't do things like the rest of the unbelieving world does. It means that... For some, this is going to sound legalistic, but but that's why I started by saying this is who you are in Christ. This is not a checklist of stuff for you to do. This is who God has made you to be. That's different, right? So because you are baptized, it brings with it an identity that is distinct. There is a different moral quality to your life than that of your unbelieving neighbor. You know what I'm saying? Because you are baptized into Christ and you follow him, you you are different. So, you're not just a sinner in need of forgiveness, which that's true. But you are also, this is the Lutheran understanding of we are both sinner and saint. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, you are both sinner and saint. Okay? So, the emphasis here is that you are a new creation in Him with a new nature that actually wants to obey God because you've been born again by water and the Spirit. And so there are things that our unbelieving neighbors are going to do and that they are going to participate in that are unbecoming of a Christian. All right? It's about to get real quiet. 
Are you looking at things online that you shouldn't be looking at? What's your speech like? Is it seasoned with salt so that it may give grace to those who hear? Are you participating in the excesses of our pagan culture? You see, you're, you're not a pagan. You're a baptized disciple of Jesus. You're a child of God. And when you fail to be salty in this way, whatever area of your life actually looks more like the world than it does what Jesus has made you to be, made you to be today is a good day to repent. Don't give in to the lie that it's just always going to be that way with you. This is just who I am. This is what I do. And God has to put up with it. No, as if God just kind of blinks his holy eye or he winks his holy eye at whatever it is that you're doing. Inclinations no longer have dominion over you. They don't own you and you can't have them anymore. This is who you're called to be in Christ. It's good news. Because you're not a slave to those things, right? You're a slave to Christ and His righteousness. And that's true freedom. But that's just the first column of our job description. So you are called to be salt in the world. You are salt in the world. Not just called to be, but you are. Here's the second. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's pretty interesting. This whole epiphany season, we've been talking about Jesus as the light of the world. That's, uh, going all the way back to Christmas Day, that's what we heard. Uh, John the Baptist saying about Jesus in John's gospel. He's bearing witness to the light. Jesus is the light of the world, the light that no darkness has overcome. So how is it that Jesus now turns to us, his disciples, and he says, you are the light of the world? Well, it's true in this way. Jesus is the original light of the world. He's the one from whom the light emanates. But we, as partakers of the divine nature through him, 2 Peter chapter 1, are made into the light of the world in a derivative sense. So here's one way to think about it. You've got the sun and the moon. They both give light, do they not? The sun is the original source of this light. The moon simply reflects the light of the sun. And that's you and I. And it's important for us to hear about this part of the job description, right? Because sometimes... Whenever we hear that we are called to be salt, we can fall into an error. And here's what I mean. When we hear that we are supposed to be salt in the world and that we are to avoid ungodliness, our tendency can be to withdraw from the world and completely cut ourselves off. At least that's, that's, my, that's what my sinful flesh wants to do. That's how we ended up with monasteries and cloisters. That's how we ended up with uh, uh, spin-off groups of the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, like uh, the Amish, the Anabaptists, and so forth. All right? And historically, Lutherans have had strong words against that type of approach to the Christian life because while the salt is strong with that type of living, the light isn't. 
Jesus does not intend for his disciples to withdraw from the world, but rather to remain unstained and pure while living in the world. And he intends for us to shine brightly because it is his light. It is not a light that belongs to us, but it is a light that he has given to us. And we must not hide it. And we hide it whenever we fail to confess Christ. We hide it whenever we fail to do good to our neighbor. So we must not hide the light. We must not fail to confess Christ whenever we are given an opportunity. We must not fail to do good to our neighbor whenever we are given an opportunity. So letting our light shine means approaching our vocations with purpose and with intention. You don't just roll out of bed and say, oh, I'm going to do the same thing that I do every day. No, there's a much greater call that's placed on your life. You have a much greater identity. And it's to approach those things that God has given you with intention and with purpose. See, you're a church member. You're a father or a mother. You're a son or a daughter. You're a worker or an employee or an employer. You're a neighbor and so on. You know, I could, I could make a really long list of all the hats that you have to wear. And here's the promise is that Jesus is shining his light through you in those vocations. Again, it's not a hypothetical. He is. He is doing those things. Perhaps you were, sh- perhaps you were sold on a version of Christianity um, like I was. That in order to do good for the kingdom, you had to completely change the world. Was that just me? That's kind of a sensationalism that I kind of grew up on. That you're called to be a radical Christian, that you've got to go to the nations, that you've got to turn the world upside down for Jesus. Maybe you Lutherans didn't grow up hearing that, but that's what I grew up hearing. All right? But here's the beauty of the doctrine of vocation as we understand it. Your Christianity isn't built upon your ability to make an impact. Rather, your Christianity is built upon the unshakable foundation of your baptism and who you are in Christ, which does not change. He has you exactly where he wants you. He has uniquely placed you there for his purposes, even if you feel like your impact isn't all that great. That's all right. Jesus knows how to work with what he's got. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant our vocations, Jesus uses those ordinary things for his extraordinary purposes. How is our congregation a city on a hill? How are we doing these things? Well, it's in holding services regularly so that all might come and hear Christ crucified. It's in our women's group baking freezer meals to give out to those who are in need while sharing God's love for them as they go through a difficult time. It's in sponsoring driving hope so that the poor and the sick can get to their appointments while the drivers share the love of Jesus with them. It's in training our members, uh, some of our members, to be a part of the Lutheran disaster response team as they go out in our salt and light to those affected by natural disasters. It's in running a homeschool co-op here at the church so that children can learn about Jesus and that parents can have an environment to teach them. It's in training our members to look for ways to bless their neighbors in both the word of the gospel and with good works. On and on I could go, but just know that this is what we are striving to do together. 
We are salt and light in our little nook of the world right here on this hill. So whenever you give your time, your treasures, your talents to support the work of ministry here, it's so that we can continue to be the light that Jesus calls us. And we gather together in this place to be partakers of salt and light in the gospel so that we may bring it out into the world. And for what? Why does he call us his salt and light? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is our witness. It's why we've been called. So that others may see the light of Christ and that they might know of his love for them. First Peter sums up what we've talked about today this way. It says, Beloved, that's you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Salt. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, light, and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as you go out there this week, remember that you are Jesus' salt and light. It's not a question of if, but a reality. And as you go, it is Jesus who promises to be with you and to work through you in ordinary ways, but for his extraordinary purposes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.